you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John into the fifth chapter as we continue our journey through this fifth chapter of John's Gospel. We come now this morning to verses 31 through 38 in which Jesus continues to speak to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, about his claim to be God himself, to be equal with God. And this morning, he will begin to bring to bear the witnesses that can be called in favor of his claim. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 5, beginning... At verse 31. If I alone bear witness about me, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. For he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Dear Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us, that in it we might find the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and majesty, that we might, O Lord, see your grace, that we might be drawn by faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in him more and more each day. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. How do we know that the claims of Christ are true? Perhaps you have been coming to church for a very long time, and you never stopped to think about that. You just have taken it for granted. Or perhaps you're a younger person here this morning, and you're here because, frankly, mom and dad put you in the car and you've come here. And you hear about Jesus, and there's lots of information about Jesus, but how do you know that what the man standing up here says about Jesus is actually true, is actually something that affects your life? You know, just because someone says something doesn't make it true. We see that all the time in our society. People just make statements out of whole cloth. They have no science or history or facts Behind their statements. But here, Jesus tells us that his claim 
does not depend on his word alone. Jesus tells us that there are witnesses to his claim to be the Son of God. And Jesus is defending this claim in a hostile environment. The Pharisees are seeking to attack him, to uproot him, to embarrass him. And if Jesus can make this claim and defend it in that kind of an environment, that means that you and I can also. Have confidence. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the claims of Jesus, hear these witnesses and believe. We'll look at three witnesses this morning and their application to us today. The first witness that we will see is John the Baptist. Jesus tells us that John the Baptist testifies to who he is. The second witness that we will see is the miracles, the works of Jesus. They testify to who he is. And then finally, and most importantly, Jesus brings to bear the witness of the Father, testifying to who the Son is in his claim to be the divine Savior. John the Baptist, Jesus works or miracles, and the Father himself. Well, our text begins this morning with more than a claim from Jesus. It actually begins with an interesting statement in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, why does Jesus say this? He says this because before Jesus' time, during his ministry, and ever since, there have been men who have come forward and claimed to be God. Claimed to be the Messiah. Claimed to be the promised one. Over and over again. And their claims relied solely on their own statements. But God, in his word, has set the standard for proof. In both Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19, we see in judgment that two or three witnesses are required to prove something in a court of law. And so just saying it by yourself doesn't prove it. Now, you may say, but, but pastor, you just told us that one of the witnesses are the miracles. That's not a person. Well, we see this in the scripture, and we even apply this in our own courts of law, that a witness does not need to be a person who speaks. It could be a document, or it could be evidence, it could be a fingerprint. And so here we have witnesses that testify, not just one, not the bare minimum of two, but three that support Jesus' claim. Now when Jesus speaks here in verse 31, he's not saying that we shouldn't believe him. You might think that at first glance. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's saying, actually, that because his testimony is true, he's not the only one saying it. Do you see the difference? We can believe the Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't have to just take his word for it. Now, we could, because Jesus is God himself. But we don't have to in accordance with God's word. And this is important for us, because for many people, they view, they view faith as a blind leap, as a leap in the dark. 
Not knowing what's on the other side. Not knowing if salvation is there. Not truly knowing who Jesus is. They think what faith is all about is not knowing and jumping into the dark. Nothing could be further from the truth. Faith is not blind. You don't need to check your brain at the door in order to believe in Jesus. You don't need to fear that your arguments with others won't measure up because it's not a sophisticated, scientific, factual argument. Faith is based on evidence, on history, on truth. That Jesus Christ did live, that he did live a perfect life, that he died an atoning death on the cross, and that he rose again. And all of that is as certain as today is Sunday. It is a fact. And so when we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to understand that that faith is something that is founded on reason, on history, and on truth. Now Jesus, in order to assure us, brings out these other witnesses. He doesn't just settle for one. He's going to bring three. In verse 32, he speaks of another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And we'll look at this person in just a moment because I think he's referring there to the Father, God the Father. God the Father is the one who in the present tense right now bears testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 33, he reminds the Pharisees that they had accepted another witness. And that was John, John the Baptist. Now we know this, we've seen this. If we go back to the very first chapter of John's gospel, we see John get on the witness stand in verse 19 of chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, John the gospel writer tells us about John the Baptist that he gives testimony. And the word is basically the same as witness. Don't let the English confuse you. Witnesses basically witnessify, if I can put it that way. They testify. It's the same word. John has already done this, and Jesus is reminding us of this. I think that John had this conversation in mind between John and the Jews when he wrote this section of the fifth chapter. It was John's testimony that they heard. You saw him. You heard him, Jesus says. Jesus reminds them that they sent priests and Levites to investigate John. And they wanted to hear his story. They wanted to have his testimony. After all, John had been preaching and people had been coming out of Jerusalem and Judea to come to him. They had been repenting and being baptized. And they had been hearing God's word and the testimony of the prophet. And so the priests and the Levites came and they asked John who he was. And John gave his testimony in verse 20 of the first chapter. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. You might even think about this in your mind's eye. Of John being in a courtroom with his hand on a Bible saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And they say, are you the Christ? And he says, no. And they say, are you that prophet? That prophet, you recall, is the one from Deuteronomy 15. 
that is associated with the Christ. Moses had said that another prophet would come like unto him, but greater. And John said, no, I'm not that prophet either. Because let me tell you who is the Christ. Let me tell you who is that prophet. And he pointed to Jesus and he says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 34, John says, All that I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John couldn't be any clearer. That's the Lamb of God. That's the Son of God. That's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Stop looking at me. Go to him. John testifies to the truth. And Jesus says to these Jewish leaders, you didn't deny his testimony. You didn't say, John, you're wrong. You actually sent to him to get his testimony. You were active in that. You didn't try to contradict him. And then later we will see in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 11 to be specific, that Jesus will give the Pharisees an opportunity to contradict John, to say that John's all wet, that we don't believe in John, that John is false, and they refuse to do so. So what Jesus says is, this first witness is one you have called upon, and he clearly testifies that I am the Son of God, that I am the Savior of sinners. Now this gives us some perspective. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. What Jesus is saying is, I don't need John the Baptist to be God. My deity, my office, my work is not dependent on John's testimony. And you might think of it this way. If you go into a museum and you see a masterpiece of art, you may have the museum curator or an expert come over and tell you that that's a masterpiece. He may even tell you about the masterpiece and why it's a masterpiece and when it was painted and so on and so on. But if that curator is not around, it doesn't cease to be a masterpiece. It is what it is. It's just testifying to the truth of what is. And that's what John is doing here. So why does Jesus even bring up John's testimony? Well, he tells us to remind others of that testimony so that they might be saved. You see, Jesus here is not centrally concerned with defending himself. That's what we might do. We might say, well, you know, you Pharisees, you don't believe me? Let me trot out my witnesses. Then you'll have to believe me. I am who I am. But Jesus isn't concerned with vindicating himself. No. His main concern is he wants them and us to believe. So he points out John's testimony. And that makes John's testimony important for us. Now, John's testimony also contains a lesson for us. Look with me at verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus calls him a lamp, burning and shining. Now, this is important because lamps do not have their own light. John is not the light. 
Jesus is the light. That's what John, the gospel writer, told us in the first chapter in verses 6 through 8. That he was not the light, but he gave testimony to the light, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And lamps don't have their own light. The reason why Jesus reminds us that they burn is someone has to kindle the lamp. In Jesus' day, you would have a lamp with a wick that would have a supply of oil, and you would have to light the wick for the lamp to give off light. And you would have to supply the lamp with oil in order for it to continue burning. It wasn't self-sufficient. Now, you may not have a lantern in your house, but I'm pretty sure you have a light or a lamp. And you don't think about the fact that it doesn't give off its own light until the power grid goes off. And then you realize your house could be full of lamps and not one of them will come on. None of them will show any light at all. They are completely dependent on something else. And that reminds us the nature of John's testimony. Now, John was a pretty important guy. He was significant. And yet he made no effort to point to himself and to what he had done. Instead, he pointed to Jesus Jesus, the light. And that is what Christians are. We are lamps lit by Jesus who shine for others to see Jesus. That's what followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are. So let me ask you, what is your testimony? How much of your testimony is about you and what you have overcome and where you are and what you have done? Are you pointing to Jesus in your testimony, or are you just getting in the way? There's also a reminder here that our witness must be permanent and life-changing. Jesus tells the Pharisees that they were willing to rejoice for a while in John's testimony. The, the word for a while actually means an hour. That's how short. For a very short time, they were willing to rejoice. Now, it was short-lived, but they liked what they heard and saw. That's what Jesus says. This word here, to rejoice, means to celebrate, to shout with joy, to throw a party. I imagine that many of you were like me last night. After the final out was recorded and the Astros won their second World Series ever, that there was much rejoicing in your home. There was probably high-fiving and yelling and jumping and maybe even some dancing. But you see, Jesus says, you can show all those kinds of things. But if it's just for a while, it doesn't mean anything. Do you see how real testimony and witness of the Lord Jesus Christ is not about emotion, it's not about celebration, it's not about drawing attention, it's about Life change, permanence, being remade in the image of Jesus. You see, the Pharisees rejoiced until they saw that John's testimony brought them to Jesus. And then they backed away. So John's testimony is important because it provides, first of all, corroboration. That is proof. That is a second statement that agrees with Jesus. But it's also important because it points to Jesus. And that is our testimony. Our testimony is to lift up Jesus, not ourselves. 
But then Jesus goes on to describe a greater witness in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now we ask ourselves, wait a minute here. John is a pretty big deal. The Bible tells us that he comes in the spirit of Elijah. One of the most powerful prophets in all of the Old Testament. Jesus himself calls John the greatest man born of woman in Luke chapter 7. John had turned Jerusalem upside down. He got the leaders to acknowledge his testimony. Remember, Jesus says they sent to John. But Jesus says there is a testimony that is greater, a more powerful witness. And that witness is the works of the Father. Now, we've already seen some of them, three of seven to be exact. You may recall that the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John are often called the Book of Signs. And that is, there are seven miraculous signs given that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by knowing and believing, you may have eternal life. The Pharisees knew about these signs also. Do you remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus in chapter 3, verse 2? What did he say to Jesus? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we've seen these over and over again. You remember first Jesus turned the water into wine. It was when he brought joy to a place where sadness had broken in. And then he healed the royal official's son, showing that he had the power to preserve life. And then thirdly, you remember, he healed the man at the pool, showing that he had saving power in a broken world, that a broken world couldn't overcome Jesus. And there's going to be more that we're going to see. Fourth, he'll feed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. To show that he has the power to satisfy and to provide. That he is the bread of life. And then you'll recall that Jesus walks on water. That he has authority over creation. Over nature itself. Sixth, he will give a blind man sight. Which reminds us that Jesus can give both physical and spiritual sight to those who are lost. And then finally, the capstone of it all is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Showing that he has power even over death itself. Now these works, all of them, were designed as a witness. Now we think of miracles as the substance, that what's important is the miracles themselves, what we see. But Jesus shows us that miracles are signs. Now, what's a sign? You know what it is. A sign points to something else. When you pull into a place and wonder where you should park, you look for a sign that says, parking here or parking lot. When you go up to a business and you're not sure whether they're open and you can go in, you look for a sign that says, open. It points to a reality that you can have. And so the Father gave the Son these works to declare who he was, to show that he was the Son of God. These signs are not primarily about Jesus' power. No, excuse me, they're not primarily about Jesus' compassion 
They are primarily about his power. We think how good of Jesus to help this lame man. We're so happy this child's not going to die. Oh, I love the fact that they rejoiced at this wedding. Isn't it spectacular that he walks on water? But you see, all of this is given to Jesus by the Father to accomplish, to finish. Because these works were to bear witness. And they were to bear witness that the Father had sent the Son. Do you see Jesus saying that here in verse 36? They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus accomplished these works so that we would know he is the Son of God. Now, there's another interesting aspect to this. You know this word accomplish in Greek. You may not be aware of that, but you do. It's the exact same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, it is finished. We could have translated that in English, it is accomplished. It's the same thing. And it declares who Jesus is and what he has done. Do you see the real importance of these signs as a witness to Jesus? God wants you to know that he has sent his son. You see, these works are not an end in themselves. They are not designed to impress you. And that's often where we camp out. We want to be impressed. We think more about the fact that nobody walks on water like Jesus. Isn't that spectacular than that the fact that Jesus is the Lord of creation? We think more about the fact that Jesus saves the day at a wedding than to think the same one who turned water into wine turns water into wine through the process of nature every day. But we like to be impressed. And when we are impressed, we can't help but talk about it. That's our focus. Again, maybe you were like me last night as I watched Jordan Alvarez hit a ball to the moon. And I turned and I said to my wife, that's the longest home run I think I've ever seen, certainly in the playoffs. That was unbelievable. Can you believe that? What about that? It was impressive. But you see, the witness of Jesus' miracles aren't to have that kind of effect. Because I'm going to forget about that by next week. You see, the witness of Jesus' miracles are to prove who he is. They testify to Jesus' deity. Only God could do such things. And they also testify to your need to believe in the one who has done the works. Jesus is who he says he is. And that is good news. You don't need to stay in your sins. You don't need to be guilty. You don't need to be hopeless. You can have hope by believing in Jesus. The one who was sent by the Father. The one who accomplished redemption. The one who died on the cross to take the penalty of your sin. That hope is a sure hope. It is finished, Jesus says. I have accomplished the work. And yet at the same time, no one can claim a lack of evidence. There is no one like Jesus. There is no other place to turn. No one does what Jesus does. No one says what Jesus says. No one is who Jesus is. 
Don't look inside yourself. And please, please do not ever follow your heart. Don't try to drown out the truth of your need. The testimony is clear. Jesus is God himself who has come with salvation. And then Jesus moves to a third witness in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. The Father did not only give Jesus works, signs as a witness. The Father himself has borne witness to Jesus. Now, this is interesting. The tense here is a perfect tense. Has borne witness. And that tense means something that has happened in the past that continues in the future. The witness and testimony that the Father has given is not just in Jesus' day, not just to the Pharisees, but it is to you and to me right now. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 32 when he says, there is another who bears witness about me. Present tense. And that is, Contrasted with John's witness in verse 33, which is past tense. What Jesus is saying is the witness of the Father is not just something that you look back on. It's before you right now. And Jesus is emphatic here about this. Jesus has saved the best for last. Now you might remember those old courtroom scenes from Perry Mason. A Perry Mason would call up that final witness and you knew week upon week, you didn't know what question Perry was going to ask, but you knew that was going to wrap up everything. And he was going to solve the case and his defendant was going to be acquitted and he was going to take care of everything. Now, I see there's some younger people here with eyes that are kind of glazing over. So let me give you a little bit more modern reference. Maybe you've seen My Cousin Vinny. And you remember that movie in which... Vinny is the lawyer representing two men who have been accused of murder. And he brings his final witness, his fiancée, who is not very happy with him at the time. She's a hostile witness. And he begins to ask her questions. He knows where he's going. And what he asks her is not only to get her testimony, but to wrap up and understand everyone else's testimony. When she testifies, you understand what the FBI agent was really saying. You understand what the sheriff was saying. You understand what everyone was saying. And that's just a pale picture of what Jesus is doing here. He brings the Father to testify because the Father is the witness. He brings truth and meaning to all the other testimony. Now, what is the Father's testimony? Well, first, it is the very voice of God. Look with me in verse 37. His voice you have not heard, he says to the Pharisees. This word here is literally a sound. And what it reminds us of when God spoke from Mount Sinai. And it's interesting because Jesus says to the Pharisees, who are the Moses club. They are the law club. And he says, do you remember when the father spoke the law? When he spoke to Moses? You're not hearing the father. You think you know the Father, you think you hear the Father, and you don't. You're not listening. I mean, John may be also alluding to what Matthew and Mark make clear at Jesus' baptism. 
You remember at Jesus' baptism, a voice breaks out from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So God has testified, the father has testified that Jesus is the son. But there's more. Jesus talks about God's word in verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. The scriptures. Now we're going to talk about the scriptures and their testimony more next week. But for now we need to understand that the father's testimony, that is his voice, is found in his word. You recall I told you that the father speaks now in the present tense? He's right here. On page after page after page speaking to you. Throughout all of the scriptures, he is testifying that Jesus is Lord. The Old Testament is filled with the testimony of the Father. From Genesis 3 to Noah to Abraham. From Moses to the tabernacle to the temple. From the sacrificial system to the call of the prophets. From David to the covenantal promise of the kingdom. The word of God is filled with the Father's testimony of who Jesus is and what he has done. And you, beloved, cannot ignore his testimony. All of God's people hear God's voice in his word. That's what made Noah build an ark. That's what made Abraham leave his home and go to the promised land. That's what made Moses stand up to Pharaoh and persevere for 40 years in the wilderness. It's what made David rejoice and have hope in the midst of trials and sin. It gave hope to the people of God during the exile. The word of God is our hope. It is the testimony of God to who Jesus is and what he has done for his people. And this is how you come to God. All of this testimony is to bring you to Jesus. The Father is calling you today to believe in Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of God. And that believing upon him, you might have eternal life in his name. That's the most important thing for you to know today. And really, every day. You may think that you have the power to sit in the jury. To listen to the testimony and to make a decision about what's true and what's not. But Jesus makes clear here that he is not on trial. We are. We're the ones sitting in the dock at the defendant's table, if you will. Jesus has come that you might be free from sin and know eternal life. He has multiple witnesses, not because he needs them, but because we do. We are so foolish, so self-centered that we forget our need and we miss the Son of God who came to save us. You've heard the testimony. Will you believe it? Will you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And even more, will you believe that he is the Savior of you? Jesus challenges you today with his statement in verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
How will you respond to the testimony about Jesus? How will you receive the one whom the Father has sent? Come to Jesus and live. Let's pray.